Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 122 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, a, that was, was a, a pregnant pause there. That was you? a delayed reaction. I was like, is there a mystery guest? No, it's just me. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm wallowing in misery over the latest Mets news. Oh, I, I, I thought you were going to finish that sentence by saying you were wallowing in misery over the Game of Thrones finale. No, I'm really not. We'll, we'll talk more about it. I, I thought, so I, I thought it was really, really good up until a particular moment, and it just should have ended there. And then, uh, um, spoiler alert, like, you know, I think if they just lopped off the back X number of minutes of the episode, it actually would have been fantastic. Yeah, it really was two things. Well, well, we'll get into but, the details. But I will say, the highlight of the Game of Thrones season finale was the last teaser before it started. Okay, well, I cannot wait to, I, I, the temptation to skip all the national security law stuff. And talk and about right season three this. of Westworld. I mean, <laughs> you know, Arya's sailing west, right? What's west of Westeros? Oh, you, you're into... <laughs> No, <laughs> no spoilers here. No. We got we got people who don't want the spoilers. All right, uh, what do we have to talk about on the core of the show? There actually is a lot of stuff going a ton on. Of I, stuff. I, around five o'clock yesterday, I sent out a tweet that like yesterday was was quite a week. It, it is well. <laughs> That has been like the most true thing for so many weeks in a row now. Uh, we've got the intersection of Separation of Powers Avenue and Trumplandia Boulevard, where today we're going to talk about two things. Uh, we'll find standing there first uh, the decision by Judge Mehta in the Mazar's uh, subpoena case. And so we have a ruling in Trump v. Committee on Oversight that's quite a bit of fun. Any case that begins with a block quote from President Buchanan is going to be interesting. Uh, secondly, <laughs> we've got... Uh, wait, the, wait uh, and, then, and then the president turns around and says, you know, the, 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 no president's ever done this before. It's like, dude, if you had even read the cover of the opinion, <laughs> you would have seen the block quote from Buchanan. Oh, my goodness. But also, and by the way, if James Buchanan is the company you're yeah, keeping... Yeah, you gotta got to watch out there. Um, uh, OLC has an opinion. Uh, like two hours before Meta's opinion came out yesterday, right? We got this OLC opinion. Yeah, about it's sort of, it's a, like it's a busy day on the corner oh of Separation gosh. of Powers and Trumplandia Boulevard. <laughs> uh, so the OLC episode thing, title. It's a busy day. <laughs> the, the, the corner of the corner of Separation of Powers and Trumplandia Boulevard. Boulevard. Well, I bet we can top that. Right. Um, so OLC's got an opinion out uh, confirming what what we were spec. Some of us were speculating, which is that the administration is going to claim testimonial immunity, not just targeted executive privilege as to certain answers or questions that might be raised, but outright immunity from having to testify for Don McGahn. We'll unpack that a bit. Um, and then sort of staying with the theme of separated powers in Trumplandia, we go to a different intersection, the intersection with uh, uh, the Insurrection Act. That old chestnut. That old chestnut. The oldest, the oldest of chestnuts. That is one of the oldest chestnuts. And I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to get to talk about that. I know you are as well. I, I mean, it's, it's, if only one of us had written their student note about the Calling Forth Act of 1792. Your, your scholarly uh, oeuvre is... Has is, sort of caught up with history. Well, no, what I was going to say is you're a little bit like, like Trump's Twitter stream. Like, there's a tweet for that. There's an article <laughs> for that in the, in the Steve Vladek. But, uh, but that wasn't true before Trump. Like That's I mean, true. Like, you were relatively obscure. I, I, I wrote all of these. I wrote all these <laughs> articles about preposterous things that like would never come to pass. This will never happen. This yeah. is kind of an. Did you have any like Third Amendment type? Of I did not write no, about the Third well, Amendment, but I, I feel like that's still going to be obscure. Summer's here. Yeah. Um, okay. So after after that, <laughs> yeah. Winter winter came and went pretty quickly. 
Yes, it did. <laughs> so, well, certainly, you know, with this week in the 90s, it feels that I way. will say, I mean, right, for the non-Austin listeners among us, the, there's, there's a moment in Austin where you know the summer is here, and it's when you walk out of your house at 7 in the morning, and it's already 80 degrees, and we're there. Yeah, as I always say, if we didn't have this kind of warm weather in the summer, imagine how much worse the traffic would be, how many more people True would be living here. True enough. Uh, so we'll talk about the Insurrection Act because the president apparently is at least contemplating, or, or at least people in the White House want to troll us by telling us that he's <laughs> contemplating Invocation of the Insurrection Act. Dance, monkeys, dance. Yeah, exactly. Is that, that's nice. Um, is that a, a, a Muppets reference by chance? Is it? Yeah, uh, I know my, my mastery of the recent years of kids' movies and lines from them is uh, maybe deeper. But yours is going to catch up soon, I assure you. Yeah. Okay, so um, after Insurrection Act, we can talk about yet another one. But this isn't really a... It's not really a separation of powers matter, though it goes to it in sort of the big picture sense, but this isn't one where we're wondering whether the president has the power. He's got the power to pardon. The issue is what apparently he's contemplating doing with it this time. And it's, and, it's, and it's something that's not just of interest to us in the same way that all uh, controversial potential pardons or actual pardons are, but rather it goes directly to topics relating to national security. Yep. Because it involves uh, war crimes. It involves war crimes. Um, and, and, and unlike what we're prosecuting at Guantanamo, real war crimes. Oh, shots uh, fired. Shots fired. I, I will say there's, there, there certainly are some uh, assertions of material support, et cetera, that raise questions about is that a war crime? Uh, I know. But there's some, there's some very I real know. war crimes. You know I agree with you. I know. I, just, I can't let that pass. I know you can't. Uh, none shall pass. <laughs> All right. So while we're on that topic, maybe uh, at that moment we will segue and just briefly note uh, some stuff that's on the horizon for Guantanamo. Indeed. And then we can come back around really quickly and talk about uh, the, the, what is it? The, the Ferris, Ferris Doctrine. doctrine. <laughs> that, nice. uh, speaking of, old, this is like the, the day of old chestnuts. The this old is, chestnuts are ripening. The, this is, the Ferris Doctrine is pretty ripe. And Justice Thomas thinks it's a little bit too ripe, perhaps. Oh, and, 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 and this may shock listeners to hear this, but I couldn't agree more. With Justice Thomas it's on this a one, typical Vladek Thomas overlap. Totally, uh, we'll have Vladek Thomas Ginsburg. Indeed, uh, we'll have a real quick National Security Division roundup, and then, of course, friends, we are dying to talk about the Game of Thrones <laughs> season finale, and we'll get to that in a Die big him. way. Ooh, uh, <laughs> foreshadowing. Maybe. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that somebody dies on the finale. This is true. It's like when they do the HBO warnings, like this yes. show contains graphic violence. Right. It's like it's about World War Two. Like, yeah. <laughs> not, not Game of Thrones. But like oh, when, yeah, when yeah. they put like a, a, a trigger, like when they put a trigger warning in front of like Saving Private Ryan. I'm like, what did you think you were watching? You know, I will say no, but the use of like the the opening, the the, the famous opening yeah. scene has a visceral impact that I think is different than your typical storm in the beach. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, to the beginning. To the beginning. Trumplandia, separation of powers. Do you want to do meta or Meta first. Meta. Okay. Meta? Meta? I think it's meta. Okay. Anyway, um, so this is the this is the first of, I think now, it's either two or three suits that the yeah. president himself filed as the plaintiff. All right. So we got this one against right. Mazars, right. His, account, his and his company's accounting firm, or one of the accounting firms. This was the one where he also named Elijah Cummings and the House Oversight Committee as defendants, and I sort of was like, you can't do that. Um, there's what there's the Deutsche Bank case. Yeah. Which is also, I think, Capital One as well. Yep. I think it's a single case. I could be wrong about that, but... Um, these are all circumstances where there are third parties in possession of financial information about the Trump enterprises writ large, and 
um, Trump is going around initiating litigation to either directly prevent compliance with subpoenas or otherwise heading off things. Uh, I know there's also a New York attorney general's request, uh, but I'm not sure he's preemptively sued or intervened in any way to try to uh, bring um, litigation about there. But eventually that's bound to happen, too. But this one is uh, focused on the accounting firm Mazars. And it's an attempt by Donald Trump and his businesses to have a subpoena quashed, uh, a subpoena issued by the House Oversight Committee, seeking records going back, I think, all the way to maybe 2011 or so. So, uh, Steve, uh, the D.C. District Court, Judge Mehta, has uh, issued a, can only be described as a resounding rejection of uh, Trump's claims. You want to unpack that? Yeah, I mean, the the so just to remind folks, this is not a case where, at least to date, the issue has been a specific assertion of a privilege um, against the subpoena, right? This has been sort of the frontal assault on Congress's power, the sort of the legitimate legislative purpose fight. Um, and over the course of 41 pages, I mean, I don't know if you had the same reaction, but to me, Judge Mehta basically dismantles that argument and says, you know, it's not my job to look behind Congress's facially legitimate purpose to figure out if this is for political reasons, since you know most of what Congress does is for political reasons. But investigating a sitting president to decide whether he's engaged in financial misconduct, to decide whether he's committed crimes, um, I think at one point he says the notion that that's beyond Congress's legislative power is unfathomable. Um, well, right? at least not in a free country. Yes. Well, indeed. Um, so, I, you know, I thought, I mean, I thought it was actually a very thorough opinion. I thought it was pretty convincing. I, I would really encourage folks to read it for themselves. It's not a tough read. It's actually, I think, starting mm-hmm. with the Buchanan block quote, it's a pretty interesting run through the relevant Yeah, let's, let's explain that because I think that, you know, I love the history. The historical nugget's pretty great. Uh, James Buchanan. Buchanan at one point uh, was trying to head off a congressional investigation and raise the exact same sort of argument that, look, this is politics. This is abusing the power of Congress to try to get at me. And, and Buchanan said, you know, presidents of both parties in the f- or all parties in the future are going to be uh, in danger if we can't reject this principle. Um, and of course, that didn't fly for Buchanan. It hasn't really, <laughs> it hasn't really fun for anybody, although it's very interesting. This, this That didn't fly for Buchanan. Also a good episode title. That didn't. Yeah, hold on, I'll write that one down. <laughs> that didn't fly for Buchanan. We might have we might have a, an embarrassment of riches for yeah. episode titles this week. Okay, so um, so th- it's not that Congress can do. And no, no. Meta does not assert that yep. Congress can do anything it wants to anybody by way of going around nope. and fishing for interesting, sal- salacious information. He says there, there's a rule, and the rule is it has to be part of. It has to extend from the broad Article One authority to legislate, and he says, and he impacts this, and I think in an utterly conventional, this is just common sense or, or widely held conventional wisdom about how this works, there is, with the power to legislate, necessarily at least some degree of power to gather information to, through compulsory power, to gather information to, to inform the legislative process, and that's got to be very broadly construed. And I, I'd say the core holding here, which is to me utterly unsurprising, is that no Judges will not second guess and try to discern where the line is between the quantum of political or partisan advantage versus the quantum of uh, theoretically disinterested legislative. Oh yeah, because Congress is always disinterested. Um, the court quite quite not surprisingly says we don't tr- we don't try to tease that out and figure out what's really going on here. Um, but then importantly, also notes that it's not just the power to inform legislation because if that's all it is, then you then you're limited at a certain point to uh, some notion of what what are the outer boundaries right. of where this really re- 
realistically— You've got to tie it to one of Congress's enumerated, enumerated regulatory powers if that's the test. Right. And, and so it's important that Meta goes on, again, very conventionally say, there's also the power of informing. Yes. And that is something I would think is probably best described as um, the power to investigate larger questions of maladministration or even cor- corruption. Right. A, a common law, it was called the power of inquiry. Yeah, exactly so. Uh, and so this this is an old idea. Now, there is, I, I think it's interesting to look at this one example that, that the other side, the Trump side, uh, offers where there's a limit here that courts have been willing to enforce, this Kilbourne versus Thompson case mm-hmm. where uh, Halleck Kilbourne, kind of an interesting character, was a D.C. sort of real estate broker, very involved and possibly had information in sort of a third-party way about some shady financial activities that went on. And when he wouldn't provide uh, documents to a House investigative committee back in the 19th century, uh, he ended up uh, being, I think, incarcerated for something like 45 days. And he ends up winning a $100,000 judgment, gets reduced down to $28,000, which is real money. I wouldn't turn that down now. It was real money back then. Uh, Later on, interestingly, he goes insane in New York City. He goes insane, gets committed. Um, But he was also someone who's a big, I know this will appeal to you, a big agitator for sort of D.C. rights. There you go. He was real into that sort of stuff. Home rule. So Halleck Halleck Kilborn basically complains about being uh, subjected uh, to punishment for having defied a congressional subpoena. And the Supreme Court, in that case, had some broad language saying, look, this was basically beyond legislative purpose. There wasn't yep. really a legislative purpose, even though they were investigating, uh, conducting the, the the power of inquiry, as you might say. O- and- over over a over area where Congress has general regulatory power, because right, it's the District of Columbia, it's Congress's broadest regulatory authority. Yeah. So I would say that's clearly, and Meta says this, that this is the high watermark. Yep. For uh, for courts policing That's right. this power, and, and there's some of it during the McCarthy era. We talked about that last mm-hmm. week, right? I mean, yeah. but but the I think what but what made it also says what I think is right is but when it's the president, right, and when Congress actually has an express constitutional role in sort of supervising misconduct by the president. Um, that changes the analysis a bit. Now, does that get us only as far as conduct during his presidency or at least during the campaign to become president? In other words, um, how, and, I, and I'm, I'm setting this up as yeah. almost like a hyper, uh, rhetorical <laughs> question, like how does this get us all the way back to 2011, 2012? I think the reality is, I mean, whether the president has conflicts of interest, which I think is, is one of the strongest arguments in favor of this inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, presumably doesn't start on January 20th, 2017. Exactly. That's the critical point. Yep. And I think a lot of people in the commentary are missing. They're saying like, well, why is he fish? Why are they looking at the grandchildren's finances? Why are they going back to 2011? Right. If the president owes some oligarch, like, you know, half a billion dollars, you know, that may not have, that may have been on the books before, you know, exactly. January 2017. Now, mind you, I'm not saying he does. No, ex- yeah. But, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's not beyond the realm of possibility. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. And boy, there sure is an effort afoot to make sure that we, it, you know, it's not the case. Right. We sure are bending over backwards here to prevent anyone from seeing it. But again, and I think this is the contrast between the Meta ruling and the McGahn opinion, right? There's still this big difference between when the analysis is focused on Congress's authority, where I think the, you know, the, the balance of analysis is generally going to favor the legislature, right, versus um, when the claim is actually not that Congress in general can't ask the question, but that there's something specific about this record or this testimony that's protected by some privilege. Well, should we walk across to that Well, topic so why don't we now? talk briefly about what's going to happen next with Mazars, right? Good, yeah. I think that's, what's um, next step? So the governor, um, Meta refused to stay his decision, um, and that's relevant because my understanding is there's already an, under, an agreement that the records will be turned over by a date certain. Uh, Mazars said we will comply with the legal obligation. Now, so Trump 
in enterprises. I'm just kind of yeah. making up that collective yeah. term for yeah. them. Uh, Vandalay Industries will uh, um, try to get a DC circuit today, right? Absolutely. So I think the next step is, I mean, they've already said they're going to appeal. Um, I'm sure they will file an appeal pretty quickly. I think the real question is, are they able to get a stay pending the appeal? And if not, now, and by stay, I don't just mean like a temporary administrative stay, because it's possible that DC circuit will, get grant, will just grant an administrative stay, yeah. which is, we'll give you a stay while we're considering yeah. the stay. Here's your 12 hours. Right. Um, the real question is, do they get a, a, a litigation stay, yeah. right, where everything is frozen pending the appeal? Because if not, I suspect they'll run right to the Supreme Court and right off the bat, right, we get a stay application um, where the Supreme Court gets its first chance to really weigh in on Trump's subpoena land. So my, my view on this is not surprisingly that, yeah, they're going to have to disclose this stuff, that this is this is money. I, but I yeah. but I think that they also get the stay. I think they should get the stay because it's, you know, this is a one-way deal. Once that information is provided, that's it. There's no one doing that if it turns out the court actually doesn't agree with the ruling. So I think on the merits, um, I, I think the committee wins on the merits, but I don't think that you, I don't think that there should be no stay in the interim. It's a tough call. I mean, so so the the question for a stay pending appeal is a balance of four factors, right? One of them is likelihood of success on the merits. And so if you really don't think that there, if you really think this is like borderline frivolous, frivolous, yeah. I don't think it's borderline frivolous, but if you really think it's like patently meritless, that's going to weigh heavily against to say no matter the strength of the equities. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, there are these examples of Supreme Court cases that have bent over backwards to create special procedural protections for the president qua litigant. Exactly. And I think that, so, so it wouldn't shock me if we got to stay here. Um, it also wouldn't shock me if we didn't. But then I think the, the pressure would really ratchet up on the Supreme Court. Um, one last thing, just because I hate the internet. So um, <laughs> every, uh, the, the karma police um, have come out to point out the irony that uh, Trump's appeal is going to be heard by Garland. Uh, by oh. Chief Judge Merrick Garland. <laughs> and I'm really sorry to burst your bubble, Karma Police. But wait, yeah, wait. How do we know who's hearing the appeal? We don't. I mean, yeah. Garland is one of 11 active judges. There are 17. Oh, this is the whole thing where people are like, hey, who's the chief judge? Yes, he must He must get to assign the case. Like, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not, not how, how it works. works. <laughs> um, now, panel assignments are not always random. I mean, Marin Levy has a really good um, law review article on sort of circumstances where there's reason to doubt the randomness of panel assignments. This isn't one of them. I mean, I think, you know, this will go to a random three-judge panel. Now, the... Uh, I tried to do the back of the envelope math before we before we started this morning. Mm-hmm. So there are 11 active judges on the DC circuit. There are six more senior judges who still hear cases. We don't know like what their docket arrangements are, so it's hard to predict like how to weight them yeah. in a combinatorial pool. But I think the odds are somewhere in the ballpark of 20-ish percent that Garland would end up on a randomly assigned three-judge panel. Not that that has anything to do with this. I was going to say, it's got nothing to do with it. I I think that no matter what, they're in a lot of trouble here. And I also think that a lot of the internet commentary that's like parsing, well, which are the Obama judges, which are the Republican judges, as if the Republican judges are somehow in the bag for this, I resent that. I agree with with resenting that. I do think um, that it will be interesting to see when this gets to the D.C. Circuit um, whether Judge Katsis, who was in the White House Counsel's Office, and Judge Rao, um, who is also in the administration, feel any 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 need to recuse. That'll be very interesting. Of course, that'll turn a lot on what their particular of course, and, and it's up to, and it's up to them. But yeah. but that'll be interesting to watch for. Definitely. Um, but all this just to say, you know, this whole like I mean, Trump did it himself, right? He he, you know, without reading the freaking ruling, he came out and said it's an Obama judge. It's a recently oh, appointed yeah. Obama no, always, judge. Yeah, blah blah blah. It's like you know what. Read the opinion, right? And I'm not talking to the president because I know he's not going to. But people who sort of default to thinking that, you know, the courts are out to get the president, read the opinion for yourself. And and if you think it's wrong, tell me why. Yeah. Um, So we've noted many times that 
there's the merits game for Trump is very weak, but the delay game is very serious and very very plausible. So DC Circuit panel, en banc review, cert, Supreme Court merits. Does it get us all the way to January 2021? I don't think so. So they can they can they can spin the wheels fast enough to get. Yeah, I mean, I mean we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like I, I was worried about how slow this was going to move, yeah. but you know, but Meta moved fast. Meta moved fast, and you know, the district court is in some ways the most important mover because that's where things can really get bogged down. Mm-hmm. Especially, especially what? C, C. Doe v. Mattis, right? Especially because Trump lost. Right now, with the fighting over a stay, yeah. that speeds things up. Yeah, that does. It, it puts the onus on, on Trump to push it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's go across the street, uh, staying on the intersection, to the OLC opinion. Uh, it's uh, up Pennsylvania Avenue. So you got to go from, you got to go from, uh, <laughs> Consti- so the D.C. Federal District Court, right, and the D.C. Circuits, right, where Constitution and Pennsylvania cross, 333 I don't know these Constitution. Streets. I am on Separation of Powers Avenue in oh. Trumplandia Boulevard. I'm, I'm talking about like actual Real streets. streets? So, no, no, stay so in my... Go, so, well, you're, you're staying in metaphorical yeah, up the street. And I'm walking six blocks up Pennsylvania Avenue to the Office of Legal Counsel. Okay, so the OLC has an opinion. Let's put this in context. Why are we talking about an OLC opinion? So this morning, yeah. right, um, Don McGahn, the president's former White House counsel, was scheduled to testify before a House Judiciary Committee hearing. Pursuant to subpoena. Pursuant to a subpoena. Um, McGahn had made, at various points, I think I can reasonably characterize them as conflicting noises about his willingness to appear voluntarily. Yeah. He's in a tough spot. Yes, no question. Yes, although he's just, I'm not a tough sure spot largely of his own making. Sure, no, I'm not saying that there's not a larger context for it, but he's in a tough spot in that he is no longer right. an employee of this administration. He's a former presidential advisor as the White House counsel. Um, if he were currently serving, uh, clearly the administration could make the call about whether or not they're going to allow him to go testify. He's off on his own. If he wants to, if he wants to, he could decide like, well, I'm, you know, I know, I know you don't want me to, but I'm gonna go ahead and testify anyway. So this is, I think, this is actually the point that a lot of people lost yesterday, right? Because all of these headlines were screaming, "OLC concludes that the president can block McGahn from testifying." Um, and there's a line in the 15-page OLC opinion that says the president can direct him not to testify, but there's no teeth to it. Right. Well, direct is almost a term of art right. here because there is this sort of idea that the president can try to direct. I mean, that's the missing word, right? Mm-hmm. Try. He can, he can tell you, I'm directing right. you not to do it. But and there's no, like, but well, there, that, okay. There's literally no legal authority for the proposition that the president could prevent a private citizen, regardless of it, right, from walking into, from voluntarily appearing and answering questions. Right. Well, so I, I, I guess I quibble a little bit. So let's let's set aside testimonial immunity, which right. is the the boldest and most aggressive claim. Yeah. And, and imagine that there's going to be some question during his testimony that is pretty clearly and fairly an executive privilege question. Yeah. And if McGahn wants to just blurt out the answer, despite the desire of the president who owns that privilege uh, to assert it, there ought to be some mechanism uh, for an intervention to prevent him from answering, right? I don't know. I, I, so maybe this is where you and I differ. I mean, I don't, I don't... I'm not 100% sure, but it, my instinct is that when when someone, when there's a yeah. principal agent style separation of privilege, right. if it's, you know, you see this with spousal uh, testimony, you can see this, you can imagine it with attorney-client privilege perhaps. Uh, it seems to me that in order for the privilege to have any teeth, you have to have some kind of mechanism to enable... Uh, uh, enable someone who's the separate holder of the privilege to make sure it gets enforced. Um, but we're not talking about executive privilege in a direct sense here. We're talking about, and this is a critical point we should make clear. Right now, we're not worried about uh, the ability of Don McGahn to perhaps refuse to answer a particular question because that particular question gets to executive privilege. Right. Can he decline to show up at all? 
Right. And that is a claim of testimonial immunity that's much bolder. So, so OLC had come out with an opinion saying we've, we've weighed in on this. And this is in keeping with how this sort of thing gets done. The OLC decides whether or not the particular circumstance is one warranting, from the executive branch's point of view, warranting testimonial immunity claims. They, not surprisingly, decided to, <laughs> yes, categorize the former, former White House counsel as someone who would get testimonial immunity. But we didn't know whether Don McGahn was going to take advantage of that and say, okay, there's my top cover. Right. Therefore, I'm not showing up. You're saying he decided today that Indeed. was the way he'd go. Yes. All right. Um, so here's the problem, right? Well, I see there are a couple of problems. So, so problem number one, um, yes, OLC had, this is not a new argument for OLC, right? This is not like a Trump-specific argument about executive privilege. OLC, I think, has across multiple administrations yep. taken similar views yep. about testimony. The Obama administration famously in 2014 yep. had an opinion uh, very similar to this. Yeah, Carl Thompson, right, I think? Uh, uh, was no, it? no, I forget the guy's name, but it was somebody else. Oh, it wasn't Carl. Okay, anyway. Maybe, yeah. um, so the here's, the, here's my concern. Um, well, I have several concerns. Um, there's not a lot of law, Bobby, on the subject in the sense of like judicial decisions. Right. But there's one pretty important one. Yeah. And it's, in fact, it's the only, I think it's the only case. Specifically addressing testimonial immunity of former and not current White House advisors. This must be one of those Obama judges. It must be. That, that John Bates guy. Oh, right. Yeah. So... Uh, so, so there's Republican a Republican appointee, John uh, Bates. I mean, not yeah, and 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 well-known, you know, figure in conservative legal circles. Exactly. Yep. Um, so in 2008, Judge Bates, um, in a case with the brilliant caption "Half Judiciary Committee versus Harriet Myers," um, right, resolved this issue um, and held after Bobby like dozens of pages of analysis. Um, that all things being equal, no, former advisors are not entitled to testimonial immunity. At best, they have privileges that will allow them to refuse to answer specific questions. They can't just refuse to show up and testify. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, again, to your point, and, and this is a generally true statement, always read the opinions. Don't just take the yeah. uh, you know, the, the intermediary descriptions. That said, very few of, your, few of you are going to go pull the opinion and read it. I understand that. We will sum up by saying it's a very typical John Bates, very learned, very reasonable and thorough analysis accounting you know, for the fact that, yes, the executive branch has persistently over time taken this position. From a from an interpretive point of view, you might say there's a uh, practical precedent that's fairly unbroken, but that's not dispositive. Right. There's no case law, he points out. And going to the heart of the matter, he says, look, it, it just proves too much. Right. I mean, if executive privilege doesn't get you this far, how can how can you then say you don't have to testify right. at you would, all? You wouldn't need executive in a world with the in a world with the broad testimonial testimonial immunity doctrine that OLC is claiming. You wouldn't need executive privilege to do that much work. No, that's right. And he, he goes out of his way to Never point. mind. I'm yeah. sorry. No, please. Never mind that the Supreme Court in Nixon, the one case where the Supreme Court has broadly endorsed executive privilege, went out of its way to stress how qualified a privilege it is. Exactly. So the idea that you could actually have that the lesser is uh, the, the greater is there when the lesser is not, it's... it's uh, right, right, right. How, could, right. how could you have the greater immunity when you don't have the lesser privilege? Exactly. Yes. Uh, and now he, he also makes hay out of the Harlow decision mm -hmm. on, on immunity. Can you unpack that a little bit? How So Harlow versus Fitzgerald. So, so Harlow and Nixon are these two cases decided the same day, right, 1982. And it was the same lawsuit brought by, I think, a former Air Force employee um, who was basically claiming that he was fired in retaliation for criticizing the president for whistleblowing about bad things that were happening in the Air Force. And he sued both the president and some of the president's senior staffers. 
Um, and in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court famously holds that the president has absolute immunity um, for civil litigation, challenge, and actions he took within the outer perimeter of his official duties. In Harlow, right, the court goes in a different direction. Harlow actually is better known, Bobby, as the modern cornerstone of qualified immunity. Quite a topic. Um, quite a topic these days. Um, and Harlow is the case where the Supreme Court adopts what's really the canonical modern articulation of the doctrine, which is um, for most government officials, and there are some exceptions besides the president, um, the test is not one of that. The, the rule is not one of absolute immunity. The, one is, the rule is one of qualified immunity, which is whether the official, um, w whether a reasonable person in the officer's position um, should have known that what they were doing violated clearly established statutory constitutional rights. And so the disjunction between the absolute immunity of the president versus the mere qualified immunity. To his senior advisors, right, senior who, are the, advisors, who right. are the defendants in Harlow. It, what it, the, the, the relevance for us is it gives the lie to the idea that the senior advisors are perfect reflections as alter egos of the president, having all the same complete status for, mm -hmm. on these issues that the president would have. So the idea that Bates expresses is if that's true in the immunity context, isn't that true in the testimony? immunity context yeah. as well. Now, one response, right, and if Steve Engel, who wrote the opinion, who wrote the LC opinion here, I'm sure he'd say is that's one district court, right? That's not precedential. Sure. And indeed they do they do go out of their way to say, and it was it was stayed on appeal. And, and it was stayed and on the, appeal. And the case went away. And the but case went away when it was settled. That, all that is irrelevant. It, it is true. It's just a district it's not court opinion. Right. It's, 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 it's relevant to the fact that that precedent doesn't bind anybody. Right. It is not relevant to the question of whether that precedent is persuasive. And it, and it also is very important in that, to, to the point earlier, to, that this isn't a partisan issue. This was a yep. conservative Republican jurist um, who's taking that position. Yep. By the way, um, Marty Lederman, because he's Marty, has just weighed in on Twitter that the motions panel this month in the D.C. Circuit is Tatel, Millett, and Rao. Okay, that's um, very and that's who would get that's who would get an emergency stay application. So you're you're pondering the possibility that maybe Naomi Judge Rao had had in some fashion had an exposure in her I don't work know. line. I, I think I think it's a. I mean, so Judge Katzis, um, Greg Katzis, who was the Deputy White House Counsel before he went to the DC Circuit, yeah. he has been recusing in cases involving yeah. the administration. You know, Naomi's job as head of OIRA was yeah, further I, removed. I, I can't imagine I actually that this would. I'm not, and, and I don't. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying she should. I'm just saying. Oh, like, I know. It's, I know. It's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, I will just say though that panel, not good for Trump. No, I don't. I don't think there is a good panel for Trump well, on this. I just so I can construct a DC Circuit panel that would be good for Trump. Yeah, um, but this ain't it. Randolph, Silberman, um, yeah, Henderson. Fair, fair. Um, that would be. I mean, that would be a really good panel for President Trump. So, is there anything else to say about? Uh, oh, so the so yeah. the OLC opinion. So McGahn, so McGahn did not appear. Um, so the other claim the OLC opinion makes is that um, the the real way the president can sort of direct or the, McGahn therefore cannot be punished right by Congress for refusing to testify because he has this immunity. And what Nadler, Chairman Jerry Nadler, my parents' congressman, um, said this morning was, you know, we'll go to court and we'll find out. And so, you know, this right. too is now heading. I mean, there's just going to be like a, my final exam. I think I can say this because everyone's taken it. I'm in the middle of grading. The hypothetical on my Fed court's final was Congress creates a special court to resolve expedited subpoena disputes. Who's the uh, moving party? 
so the recipient of the subpoena, right, is granted a cause of action to 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 bring whatever legal objections he or she can to seek to quash the subpoena. Why not just sit back as long as you trust the executive branch won't take any enforcement mm-hmm. action against you if you're McGann or some yeah. hypothetical person? Why not just sit back and say, you know, issue your contempt citations? No, no, I know, right? That's, uh, unless you're going to send the sergeant at arms out to get well, me. Well, and this is this is this is uh, again, and we, we sort of we 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 devolve back to where we are along, which get, is but where I'm getting to is like I wonder if that's where we're heading. Like it's sort of a, uh, a game a chicken. Well, except, but so this is where I think there's a real difference between the McGann case and the Mazars case. In the McGann case, yes, right? The chicken is very, it's very, the chicken is quite real, um, right? The specter of chicken yeah, is, yeah. is high. The the track, the footloose tractors are heading right at each right. other. But in the Mazars case, right, Trump's the moving party um, because you've got this third party that actually is willing to otherwise comply with the subpoena. Exactly. And so, so, so you can't, so yes, the, the impasse may happen in the McGann side of the coin, but the Mazars case is, yeah. and, and this, Deutsche and, Bank will be the same. And Capital this is One why, and same. this is why I'm not sure if it wasn't a huge strategic mistake on Trump's part to bring those cases because he's giving the courts a way of getting to a matter yeah. that he has mechanisms for deferring in the context of. I, I think he had no choice. I think he was kind of toast either way yeah. because they were going to comply with it. Otherwise, want, well, and yeah. so the, and so we go back to the question, which is, you know, is it really worth all of this? Is is what he's surrendering on the litigation strategy front, right? Yeah. Um, a necessary cost to the benefit of trying to keep the stuff secret. We can't answer that until we know what it is. Exactly. And uh, you know, this I think highlights something very interesting that comes up in law school all the time, which is getting people to understand the importance of the default position. Mm-hmm. Um, who's got the power of initiative? Possession it, is nine tenths of the law. It, it partakes of that, right? If, if, if you've got the default position on something where it's kind of unclear how there could be enforcement, well, you may lose on the merits, but have you lost in practice? Right. Um, and in this case, if it were only a question of trying to extract information and documents from people who were very eager not to provide them, Trump would be in a strong position to exploit that default position. Yep. But he's got third-party financial institutions that are going to obey legal orders unless they're compelled not to. That's what's, that's what's got him. Okay. Um, should we move on down the block uh, to the The part of the office of, Oh, Oh, you, you, you want to go? You want to go across the river? Well, so the, are we going across the river to the Pentagon, or are we going down the hall to the office of the pardon attorney? Uh, either one. <laughs> let's go. Uh, let's go to the Pentagon first. Pentagon. All right. Uh, calling our Pentagon reporter. There's uh, been a. There's been a. There's been a mention of the Insurrection Act. All right. So, Steve. Uh, first of all, the factual context that's got us talking about this. Uh, I think it was the Daily Caller or somebody dropped a story or conveniently amplified a story that, hey... From an anonymous uh, administration which, official. Which, you know, so first of all, once again, anonymous uh, uh, White House officials speaking to the media, notwithstanding what the president says, but also, B, there's a real prospect here that this is a little bit of trolling to get people wound up, and I think it's always good to take a deep breath and say, on the one hand, you got to respond to these provocations by pointing out where the legal lines are. Yes, and that's part of our job. Um but on the other hand, we got to also be aware of the possibility this may just be trolling to spin people up. That said, let's take it seriously. Uh, the suggestion is the president might invoke the Insurrection Act in order to uh, acquire the statutory authority to direct the military to go around seizing uh, persons. Well, in the- so the story is vague, right? The yeah, sto- yeah, it's not The quite story clear is vague about what the military would actually do, whether, whether what it's contemplating is activating the military for the purpose of doing border enforcement or actually sending the military into American cities to find undocumented immigrants and remove them. Because so, cou- that's a pretty big, politically. It's a huge difference. That's a, right? Well, I mean, policy-wise, right. Yeah. So the worst case scenario that, that, that is most sensitive would be 
deciding to use military force to conduct what amounts to law enforcement activity, a species of law enforcement activity, albeit of the immigration law variety rather than the criminal law enforcement variety, in a way that charges directly into the teeth of civil military boundaries, right? Posse comitatus type boundaries. The Insurrection Act is a way to overcome that. Is that what's going on here? It's a little, that's, if that's what is being hinted at, then I think it is a bit of trolling. It's very hard to imagine that, because that's going to inflame people far beyond just uh, the left, I think. Um, it's also possible that what instead is going on is it's, it's real, but it's not that dramatic. What they want to do is acquire the ability to tap into National Guard type forces, federalizing them and obliging uh, various state National Guard forces that otherwise have governors who are not going to do this right. voluntarily right. and not going to do it on state dime, uh, putting them to work so that you don't have to put the regular armed forces into these positions, which may just be more supporting roles, et cetera. Um, that would be far less of a contravention of civil military norms. Yeah. Um, still be, but it, it would still, still be, be sensitive. And it would still be on an unusual invocation of the Insurrection Act. No question. So let's let's talk about the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection you know, Act. You know something about this. Oh, my gosh. The, the, the ghost of what's the, the ghost of the past? No, wait. The, the quiet dogmas of the stormy no the 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 Lincoln's first inaugural <laughs> the dogmas of the quiet past are no match for the stormy present or something like Ooh, that I like that right, some, uh, all right so I'm so, no Lincoln so this is rooted in the Constitution but it's a statutory enactment what's the constitutional piece and then how do we get a statute out of it so Article One Section Eight Clause Fifteen we were talking about Congress's enumerated powers before mm-hmm. um, gives Congress the power to provide for the calling forth of the militia to suppress insurrections, to repel invasions, and to execute the laws of the Union. So the idea was in the early republic where there was an assumption that there would not be standing federal armies, uh, the, the occasional need— or, or where we didn't like standing federal armies. We, there's, there's some debate about whether it's, we wouldn't have them or we didn't like them. Well, we certainly didn't like them. It was a core part of the, yes. the political philosophy of the time that these were instruments of tyranny. Uh, far better in a free society just to have your uh, have your militias. And they're available on call, but they're, of course, creatures of local and state, of state government structures. And so you could have had Article Two having the power in the president to issue proclamations federalizing— uh, state militias when needed for various, you know, it could have been a, the same language which is given to the president directly, but it's not. As a further check and balance, the, the authority to unleash that capability to federalize what was presumed to be the, the predominant military capability was given to Congress. Yep. Congress was given authority to decide how they wanted to calibrate that. And, and Jackson, Justice Jackson, in his concurring opinion in Youngstown, actually goes out of his way to talk about how the fact that the Constitution gave this power to Congress is a pretty powerful um, reflection of what the founders thought about the separation of powers with regard to domestic war policy. That's right. It. No, it's, it's very much of a piece with the declare war yep. power being in Article One. This is all part of the uh, idea that, yep. that the the legislative branch at the end of the day should control the resort to these types of force. Right. Now, unless, unless it's defensive, although this one actually even contravenes that line. So right? the, so this the, is a defensive. The scenario. repel invasion part, right, is where yeah. this gets really interesting. So um, there's uh, my student note in the Yale Law Journal in 2004 was all about the early statutes Congress passed leading up to what we now call the Insurrection Act, um, which is codified today at 10 U.S.C. Section 251. Oh, wait, can, I, can I interrupt yeah. you before you get into the flow on that? Yeah. Just, it just occurred to me. Please. Is it right to think of the decision to empower Congress here, uh, even in an invasion scenario that mm-hmm. otherwise partakes of what even the founders thought was a presidential responsibility to defend the country without having to wait for a declaration of war, yeah. is, is it actually protecting a federalism value? The idea is that, uh, look, federalization of the militias is goes really deep into state uh, semi-sovereign yeah. authority. Yeah. 
And so what's going on here is you want to have the branch that's got state direct representation yep. in the form of the original lineup of the Senate, yep. which used to have state direct representation. Um, this Plain is a way of giving the states some voice. Yes, and I think that's reflected, Bobby, in the structure of the 1792 Act, which actually drew, drew a huge distinction between whether the emergency for which the president was calling forth the militia was in the same state as the militia he was yeah, calling forth, yeah. or whether he was sending some other state's militia into harm's way. Um, the Whiskey Rebellion, right, the one great use of the 1792 statute, Washington had to run through all the traps because he wanted to use the New Jersey and Delaware and Maryland militias um, in the you know in Western Pennsylvania. He wants to send Northmen from Winterfell, Winterfell down to uh, you know. Don't get me started. Um, all right. So, but but here's right. but here's the problem. So the original the originalism here is is crystal clear. There's no debate about it. Everyone understands it. The problem is how quickly Congress goes back on these sort of original structural commitments. So the 1792 Act is actually a model of careful sort of multi-branch responsibility during emergencies where Congress is delegating power to the president. How much power depends upon whether Congress is in session or not. Mm -hmm. um, if the president wants to do especially aggressive things, he has to get approval from a federal judge. Right. Possible Article Three problem there, it seems. Um, yes, possibly. Um, in, I mean, unless you think of it as a warrant, but, you know, <laughs> an insurrection <laughs> warrant. Um, be that as it may. Um, and Washington follows us to the letter in the Whiskey Rebellion. He gets a, a certification from Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, a founding father himself, um, that you know things in Pennsylvania were too overwhelming for yep. the local authorities to handle. But then Congress has the wrong reaction to Washington, which is, oh, look how well that worked. We don't need all of these checks. Yeah, that is that's an interesting. Is that sort of the rationale? Like this is <clears throat> this was kind of cumbersome. That's dumb. We let's just make it, it more was efficient. It was inefficient, right? Yeah. And so, so the 1795 Act removes a bunch of the sort of structural checks. But the most important statute, and the one that's generally called the Insurrection Act, is a one-sentence bill that con that the Ninth Congress passes on its last day in session on March 3rd, 1807. Mm -hmm. Has no legislative history. It's signed into law by you know that great lover of presidential power, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and this, the 1807 statute says, in all of the circumstances where we previously said you can use the militia, you can also use the federal regulars. Yeah. And right there, like, you know, not 20 years after the Constitution was drafted, Congress acquiesced in sort of destroying the structural line that I, I at least think the Constitution was meant to was meant to draw. Fascinating. All right. So these days, this stuff's all codified in Title 10. 10 USC. Uh, it just got moved yeah, from 251 to 255 Right. Now. It used to be 331 to 335. I hate it when they just don't decide. Don't move things. Don't move stuff. They did this with all the covered action statutes, too. It's like, listen. We learn it one way. Yes. Um, but here's the thing, right? And this, I, I've been yeah. sort of belaboring the punchline. The Insurrection Act is an incredibly open-ended grant of authority. It all it requires, much like the National Emergencies Act, is a proclamation by the president that he has determined that what combinations, assemblages, yeah. etc., so too here, powerful. You have the, here, you have the text. Here's here's 10 U.S. Code 252, and I'm also going to give 253 because I think it's interesting to compare the two. Yep. Uh, 252, 10 U.S. Code 252. Whenever the president considers that unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages or rebellion against the authority of the United States makes it impractical to enforce the laws of the United States in any state by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. He may, he may call into federal service such of the militia of any state 
and use such of the armed forces, there's your expander, as he considers necessary to enforce those laws or suppress the rebellion. So we can drop out the rebellion part. It's just about law enforcement. So the claim here would be the president's got pre-delegated authority to call up state militia, militia forces or to use federal authorities to enforce certain laws that are going unenforced because of assemblages or combinations. Uh, presumably, this would have to be, a, and he'd have to make that finding, right? He'd have to assert that there is a way of characterizing uh, migrants who come into the country illegally. Maybe he'd try to claim others supporting them too, that they net-net into an organized disruption and disobedience to the laws. But he'd have to assert, and here's, here's the interesting part, he'd have to assert that the ordinary course of judicial proceedings can't handle this. Mm-hmm. And so this becomes just like the damn you know border wall funding emergency claim where you have to make the claim that things are beyond, so, that require the use of the military. I'm about to surprise you, I think. Yeah. I think that's a stronger argument here. Okay. Yeah, I know you've written about this at The Atlantic. You yeah. had a piece. What, um, the question is, A, does he have sole discretion to make the call, in which case it's moot? That right. is, does the court have any room to disagree? Because if not, then it doesn't really matter. It's I mean, there's just not a blank a lot, check. There's not a, there's not a lot of case law challenging the validity of activations under the Insurrection Act. I mean, it's also worth stressing, as The Atlantic piece points out, um, Insurrection Act activations have become um, – how do I say, disfavored, um, right? I mean, we're in the middle of the longest period in American history right now without one. The last time that a president used the Insurrection Act to yeah. deploy troops for domestic law enforcement was the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles yeah. in 1992. That that doesn't, to me, convey any desuetude-type arguments. No, or... no, not desuetude, but just that, like, I think, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I think it's a reflection of how the politics have evolved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, right. where, where, where it is seen as politically disfavored because both, one, local law enforcement is much better and much more equipped Mm-hmm. than it used to be to hand well better better is pejorative um, local law enforcement is certainly tends to be less easily overwhelmed given modern training and equipment mm-hmm. um, and two I think the politics are such that it's seen as a more f- coercive action for the federal government to take and I think at various points in American history it was understood to be um, I think so there's not a lot of case law I I think whether the standard review is, as you like to say, you know, binding, right, binding right, deference, yeah. um, where the president, where any sort of superficially plausible determination by the president goes, or Bobby, even just sort of, you know, moderate deference. I mean, whatever you think of, of our current immigration system, it is true that the courts are overwhelmed, right? It is true that, you know, there are far more individuals in this country who are subject to deportation than the federal government, than the ordinary offices of the federal government has the capacity on an annual basis to 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 enforce the laws against. Now, we've never thought of the Insurrection Act as being about sort of like a numerical capacity mm-hmm. calculation. But, Bobby, I could see the argument. So I think there's a nexus problem there. So if the nexus between the failure of the ordinary judicial proceedings versus the solution that's been put on offer by by invoking um, either state militias yep. or state National Guard forces or federal services. Um, there needs to be some kind of logical nexus or else what's the point of this? And if the problem is that they're not processing fast enough, I don't see that because the military can't help with that, I don't think, right? Unless they're going to take all the Gitmo judges and make them all be immigration no, I, judges, I mean, but they're doing their best to try to put themselves in that position already. I mean, that's why. So that's why, to some degree, the devil's in the details, right? I mean, and what so they have them do, what they exact, what exactly yeah. they have the military do. But the key is, though, I mean, the reason why this matters, sort of legally, is because usually the constraint on military law enforcement, right, on domestic use of the military for law enforcement purposes, is the Posse Comitatus Act. 
everyone, I think, understands that um, the Insurrection Act is one of the most well-settled exceptions Absolutely. No, that, to the Posse Comitatus It goes out Act. of the way. Here, here's what I think maybe makes more sense as a nexus. The claim won't be that they can't process, that the courts are overwhelmed in the immigration system. It's going to be all about, actually, the captures, and it really will be a capture situation. I'm mindful that, uh, you know, the uh, DHS has put out this call to try to get other parts of DHS to basically uh, second employees. Did you see that they were sending cybersecurity no, people I, I, to the border? Of course, that's why I know about this is that uh, CISA <laughs> has been asked to ch- see if you can get any uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency employees uh, to take a little tour of the, the the Southwest, and they're not having a lot of luck getting people to sign up for this, shockingly. Wait, wait, um, you, you mean cybersecurity is not about physical borders? Uh, well, listen, it is fair to say that CISA is not just cybersecurity. It's cybersecurity and general uh Infrastructure I, I know. But but the whole point is you're pulling people out of other DHS functions to try to search here. So there is an they argument. aren't unimportant. I, I'm kind of going with you that there I is know. there is a good faith argument that something involving the enforcement process, just not the court piece of it, but the uh, the policing of the border itself does seem pretty overwhelmed at this point. That's the core argument they'd make. Um, so that raises that all assumes that there could even be litigation. Steve, is there any scenario in which there's actually a party with standing to bring the, uh, the Again, it challenge. Depends, it depends on what they do. I mean, right, so so if I'm a undocumented immigrant and I'm arrested by, you know, the army, right, um, maybe I could collaterally attack the validity of the arrest by saying, you know, but the problem is, is that yeah, they're- it wouldn't right, work. You're not no, being prosecuted. Well, and Kerr Frisbee, right, that like the yeah. arrest doesn't matter as no, long as- No, it goes nowhere, right? yeah. Um, I don't know. And but this, unlike the, the border wall stuff, this isn't involving land seizure, where we've often said it's right. the people whose land might be seized who probably have the best standing claims. We don't have anything like Listen, that here. I, I mean, to make a long story short, I, I don't think – so first of all, if this, this hasn't happened yet, right? If it happens, it might be very modest, right? And even then, I just, I'm not sure either, one, that it will be clearly unlawful or, two, um, that there will be an obvious way to challenge it. I think part of what this is exposing, as with so many other statutes, this is what I wrote about in The Atlantic, um, is that there are a whole bunch of statutes on the books, Bobby, where Congress has delegated, at least on paper, a ton of power to the president. I think, I, I think it's safe to say, assuming that the full limit of the statutes would not be tested except when there was like political consensus to push the envelope. And what we're seeing today is a president who is perfectly willing to test every single iota of his statutory authority to hell with the political consequences. Well, because there are no political consequences. Perfect segue to the last point I want to make about this. I'm going to skip reading 10 U.S. Code 253, which is sort of a a similar way of... But you can pause the podcast right now and go read it for yourself. You can. Now, come back. Hey, welcome back. (laughs) So... um, I wanted to highlight if there were somehow to be a way to get this into court, uh, there would be a huge deference question. And we know this because the Supreme Court has a case from 1827 called Martin, Martin versus v. Mott. Mott. That guy. It's a great case. It comes out of the War of 1812 where I think it was a New York militiaman uh, refused Dude. to report for duty when the militia was called up by Pre- President Madison. Uh, and he ended up being court-martialed and so on and so forth. His property got seized, and so he, he sues after his property gets seized. He sues, like, the, the sheriff or whoever grabbed his property. And so it's 15 years after the or 13 years, I guess, after the conflict ended, and it generates this opinion by the Supreme Court written by Justice Story. 12 years. Tw- 
1815, right? Not 1814. All right. Uh, so it any- depends on whether you're going by the treaty or the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, well, I don't know. There's a whole song about the. <laughs> this song comes on the radio the other day in the car, and the kids are like, what is this weird song? You know, the, the whole song about Andrew Jackson yep. and the Battle of New Orleans. Yep. And I'm trying to explain to them, like, well, you know, this battle occurred after the Treaty of Ghent. How does that happen? Yeah, they, they were like, they have that internet? changed the channel. So, anyways. Um, so Martin V. Mott is basically a challenge where the guy says, look, it was legitimate for me to disobey my, my captain's order to assemble for the militia because it's not – he was trying to show like the conditions for Madison to call out the militia had not yet at that moment been met because there hadn't actually been the invasion yet. He was trying to challenge the factual sufficiency. So the Supreme Court weighs in on under the statute, can the court second guess? Obviously, Madison felt the condition had been met. Uh, and, and there's a long series of passages – uh, very firmly arguing for exclusive decision-making authority in the president on this question. And then he gets to the end and addresses the problem, I think, from our perspective, just jumps out at you. If it's really binding deference, doesn't that expose us to danger if the, if the president acts abusively? To which Justice Story responds, quote, It is no answer that such a power may be abused, for there is no power which is not susceptible of abuse. The remedy for this as well as for all other official misconduct, if it should occur, is to be found in the Constitution itself. In a free government, the danger must be remote, since in addition to the high qualities which the executive must be presumed to possess of public virtue Those were the and, days. and honest devotion to the public interest, the frequency of elections and the watchfulness of the representatives of the nation carry with them all the checks which can be useful to guard against usurpation or wanton tyranny. Close quote. So, so you know what strikes me about that quote? It sounds almost like a paraphrase. It, it sounds very similar to Chief Justice William, and former President William Howard Taft uh, in Ex Parte Grossman in 1925 in talking about the pardon power. Yeah, which is a good segue because all of these are areas of, for better or worse, and now we're getting a little bit of the worst perhaps, yes. unbridled executive discretion where either in the pardons case, Article 2, the Constitution just right. directly gives it. Whereas in the Introduction Act case, it's Congress. It's Congress yep. combined with the courts interpreting it a yep. certain way. So uh, so look, I, probably hypothetical on the instruction stuff, but this pardon business doesn't sound hypothetical at all. It sounds like they're really drawn up papers, or at least they're really close to doing it. So, I mean, we've, we've talked before about the president's pardon proclivities. Um and the sort of irregularities of some of these pardons, that is to say that he's not going through the sort of the office of the pardon attorney, the normal process, et cetera. The story that came out over the weekend is that the president's considering pardons. So first of all, he did pardon um, Lieutenant Michael Behenna, um, right, who is a soldier who was convicted by court-martial for um, basically killing a prisoner, which he, he claims in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's obviously dispute about that. Um, there are these two others. What Gallagher is the Navy SEAL, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't remember the name of the, the the third case, but anyway, sort of two other cases where the president is now talking about um, pardoning people who have either oh uh, Goldstein, um, who soldiers who either have been accused of serious war crimes or have been convicted of serious war crimes, um, and and Bobby pardoning them f- f- seemingly for no other reason than because you know they're Americans and the vi- and their victims weren't. Uh, I. I think the the idea here is that there's a lot of political hay right. and or in just the president's personal instinctive uh, sort of embrace of like these are, you know, screw the rules. Right. And so the idea that, that 
American service members are in jail for violating, you know, air quotes rules, that, that that's just the sort of thing that's outrageous from but, his personal but, but perspective. But to be clear, there's no claim, like, there's no claim that, like, you know, in the case of the guy who was convicted, he got an unfair trial. No, 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 no. That, like, it's, got, that, right? like, no it's, it's a rejection of the idea that you should be punished for committing the war. At crime. all. At all. Yeah. And, 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 and including... And, and and that's why you see it not just as just someone convicted, but it's just someone who's been is who's being investigated and is going to be prosecuted for yep. this. It's it doesn't matter whether it's proven or not because the president is all but saying directly that he rejects the idea that there should be these enforceable prohibitions against war crimes, which is why so many of us in the legal, national security, and law of armed conflict communities are really spun up about this, yep. including, by the way, lots of non-lawyer military commanders for whom this signal is incredibly ten- corrosive of military discipline. Well, so it has two huge problems, right? The first is the front-end problem, which is it's incredibly corrosive of military discipline. The second is reprisals, right? I mean, you know, the, the the concern that, like, if this is the U.S. approach to war crimes, you're just incentivizing, you know, our enemies in future conflicts to take a similarly derogatory approach to these principles. So while I agree that reciprocity historically has had a huge role to play in law, I know, in asymmetric warfare, in asymmetric warfare, yeah. you, I, I, I want to stay far away from making that argument because the predicates won't be there. No, no, in asymmetric warfare, but but who's to, who's to say that all of our future warfare will be asymmetric? Yeah, well, but again, it's also quite possible that like so, look, we have plenty of reason to think that we'll have lots of conflicts where no matter what we do, we're going to have enemies who are cutting the heads off our captives, yep. what have you. I, it can't depend on reciprocity. No, I agree. I, and I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners who are, who are trying to think, help us think through this, yeah. that I'm urging you not to hang your hat on reciprocity. That sort of, let's do this because it'll ultimately be good for our folks. It, it may not make a difference. When we in Vietnam decided that we would confer POW status on right. the Viet Cong, uh, who absolutely did not legally qualify it for it, we did it as a matter of policy, there was a hope that it would engender better treatment for our people. There's a lot of historians that say that, well, basically not really, it didn't. Um, you, you can't hang these arguments on that You got it's, when it comes to actually whether we're right. prohibiting war crimes. Right, no, no I, I agree. I, but but back to the unit discipline point. I mean, so, you know, there are all these sort of snide folks on the internet who are like, you know, I like all of these, you know, people who have never served in the military, you know, talking about how it's bad to pardon these people for war crimes. Forget the people who haven't served. I mean, not that that should be a prerequisite, but the soldiers, right, are the ones saying this is a terrible yeah. precedent. I mean, no, right. um, Gallagher, right, Gallagher was turned in by his fellow SEALs who test, who lined up to testify against That's him. That's right. And the commanders who are bringing – it's acting as if the entire apparatus of, of the Uniform Code of Military Justice and its effort to prevent violation of the law of armed conflict is somehow coming from outside the military – when it the whole is, point is actually, you know, it's a lot of self-policing, which historically has been one of the most structural criticisms of military justice is that it's too much self-policing. Here, the notion that, you know, the notion that, like, the military has nothing, it, it just, this bothers. So all of this is to say, right, that this is a perfect example of something where the president has the unquestioned constitutional authority to take the proposed action. This isn't a self-pardon. This isn't a, like, you know, this clearly falls within the scope of the pardon clause. And yet it is a terrible Horrible, no good, very bad idea. Agreed. Now, does that make you think that the pardon power should be changed? No. Okay. No, it just, it's makes just me- but it's just like this is a this is 
this is a really horrible thing to do with it. We ought to, listen, we all ought to be able to go back to a time where we understood that just because the president had the formal authority to do something Doesn't didn't mean, mean that it was a good idea. Well, I come back to Jess's story. <laughs> and of course, I, I think I didn't actually say this because I think it was obvious, but I was reading that with a lot of sarcasm because obviously the assumptions Jess's story was offering here are not. And Taft and Grossman. No, no, exactly. Look, there's, there's a long tradition. The American tradition is one of aspiring to, and to the extent you can do it, uh, assume you've got civic virtue on the part of people that get involved in civic affairs. Um, we have a fundamental problem right now of, of someone in the White House who does not, shall we say, have civic virtue. Um, so, well, as you know, I, I mean, as you know, I lay much of that blame. I mean, I still think the founders were perfectly aware of the possibility that we'd have a president who lacks civic virtue. I think what they weren't expecting was a Congress that would tolerate no, it. No, that's so. right. The fundamental diagnosis that, of course, they understood that people were not angels, that you have to set uh, avarice and ambition against avarice and ambition. Right. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Absolutely. is why you have separated powers. Um, but we've discovered- what? what are those? We've discovered that a combination of gerrymandering, uh, money in politics, gerrymandering again, Money and politics, gerrymandering a third time because it's that important. <laughs> yes. Plus, no term limits and the arrival of a professional class of career politicians who don't have real jobs. There are some exceptions, I know, but basically, people whose aspiration is to just be reelected. All this ruins the assumptions of the separated powers that are institutionalized in our system. End of rant. Um, let's just say this final bit about the pardon business. There's a real legal consequence here if he does exercise this power, which he does have. It takes away, in a, in a very effective way, the argument when it comes to international law and, and potential foreign prosecutions of a U.S. service member. Um, and, and granted, you know, we're not saying the International Criminal Court is going to get their hands on a U.S. service member and prosecute them. But whenever there is any discussion in international law about war crimes where the lens is pointed at the United States, the first response always has been under presidents of both parties that, look, we have an effective legal system. When these things happen, we do prosecute them. Look, here are court martial proceedings against service members charged with war crimes. Well, if the president intervenes preemptively to terminate those proceedings through a preemptive pardon, not even based on a claim to look, this is this right. guy's getting railroaded. Right. There's some other extenuating circumstance, but just that this is ridiculous. I don't want people getting punished for that. That takes that argument off the table. Yep. All right. To the Ferris Doctrine? Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of service members? Yes, Ooh, yes. segue. Oh, nice segue. That actually works. Yes, that actually right. did work. Remind us, what is the Ferris wheel? The Ferris wheel. Um, by the way, we're at an hour, so I'm going to do the short, oh, short version. Quick, yeah. um, so the Ferris Doctrine, this came back up because of an order the Supreme Court handed out on Monday. Um, the Ferris Doctrine is, to me, one of the most indefensible things the Supreme Court may have ever done, um, and that's saying something. Um, in 1950, so... Let me back up a second. In Congress in 1946, Bobby enacts the Federal Tort Claims Act. The Federal Tort Claims Act is the first, you know, broad sweeping waiver right. of the federal government's sovereign immunity for ordinary tort yeah. suits. Bring on the tort lawyers. Right. Um, basically, you know, sort of um, unintentional torts. So negligence. Yeah. Um, right. That kind of stuff. If, the, if someone in the federal government does that to you in their official capacity, you know, in the scope of their employment, you ought to be able to sue Uncle Sam. Um, four years later, the Supreme Court, in the middle of the Korean War, um, carved out an atextual exception to the Federal Tort Claims Act for any claim by a service member arising out of or incident to their military service. Um, 
there was no real statutory basis for this. Congress had rejected such a proposal and instead had enacted a more limited exception for torts arising from combatant activities. So like stuff that happens over there, um, right? There's a foreign country exception. But Congress had not said, if you're a service member and you're injured here in the US in a non-combatant activity, you can't sue the government. Um, instead, the Supreme Court said it for them. Did they argue that this was a necessary accommodation of the statute to accommodate Article II so sensitivities so Justice, about the Justice, national military establishment? So Justice Jackson wrote the opinion. Um, there are four different rationales offered. The third of them, right, is to sort of resist the possibility of inserting the courts into sensitive military affairs. Keep in mind, though, that because of the other FTCA exceptions, this is only yeah, coming they, up in domestic cases that don't involve combatant activities. Right. And you can't argue that this is constitutional avoidance as an interpretive mechanism because clearly Congress did think about this and chose to draw a particular line that the Supreme Court then comes along in what looks like a rather legislative act, draws it a little bit wider. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so the the sort of it's other than Justice Douglas who concurs in the result, it's otherwise mostly a unanimous opinion. Um, and you know maybe in that moment it made sense. The problem is that as time has gone on, it's become increasingly clear just how like um, unfair and punitive it is to service members. Um, so there's a 1987 case, Johnson, where Justice Scalia writes a dissent on behalf of himself, Brennan Marshall, and one of the other liberals. I mean, this is how yeah. bad it got. Where Scalia's like, guys, this is nuts. Um, and he's right. But the court has shown no appetite for revisiting this decision, and Congress hasn't either. Um, enter Justice Thomas. So six years ago, Thomas, out of the blue, um, picked up on Scalia's dissent from the 1987 case and said, guys, it's time for us to revisit this, um, in a dissent from the denial of a certain case called uh, Lannis. Um, and then on Monday, he did it again, um, this time in a medical malpractice case where a, um, a Navy lieutenant who died four hours after giving childbirth to her daughter and whose husband claims that her death was entirely a result of negligence and malpractice by the medical staff, was held that she couldn't bring a medical malpractice or wrongful death suit because she was in the Navy and she was treated at a military hospital in Bremerton, Washington, right? I mean, like, you know, not in like Iraq. Right, right. Um, and, you know, Thomas says, guys, this is exactly why we ought to revisit the Ferris Doctrine. Um, he seemed to have picked up one more vote in Justice Ginsburg, but that's just two. Um, That's so interesting. So do you think this actually could – is there any reason to think that you can get to a majority no. on this? No. So I really think the question is, you know – Congress. Congress, this should be a no-brainer. Like support, if, you want, if, if you want to actually support the troops as opposed to just yeah. like revering them. So the, 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 the politics of this, it must be that the, the concern is, oh, you're opening the doors up for tort suits. It's, it's sort of a general sort of tort reformish, don't open the door towards – Especially the, and don't increase the tort liability of the federal government. Um, especially. Yeah, pr so protect the FISC and hostility to tort right. lawyers. So there's a more modest proposal that Congress introduced that, that a bipartisan coalition of House members introduced last month that would just abolish fares for medical malpractice claims. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, here's why I don't like that. Um, so to me, the medical malpractice cases are always horrible because something bad always happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, the cases that actually also get my dander up almost as much are the um, service academy cases. Right, where the cadets are basically bringing the kinds of claims that students at any educational institution might have against the institution, but are barred by the FTCA because they're cadets. <laughs> I hate to say this, but which way does that cut? I mean, that students bring a lot of wider variety of claims. Yeah, indifference, particular... indifference to sexual assault. Well, um, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, why, yeah. why isn't it just like pick a few things that are particular, like sexual assault, right. or uh, you know, the medical malpractice? Fine. Areas. Pick a few things. Okay, but but I think I mean the list is long enough, Bobby, that I think it's worth having a broader conversation about you know reforming fairs. Totally, totally down with that. Totally um, down with and that. And as of about I think half an hour from now, there will be an op-ed of mine up in the New York Times. Ah.
saying as much. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you typed that out while we were doing this. Huh? Multitasker. What? Um, all right, so real quick, we'll close. Uh, before we get to frivolity, I'll just note two developments. National Security Division over the past week, a uh, huge conviction of a Hezbollah member, Ali Kurani, who's a naturalized U.S. citizen from Lebanon. Long story short, when he was back in Lebanon at one point about 10 years ago or so, he got recruited by Hezbollah's external operations arm uh, and was involved in various types of su- support-type activity, uh, gets busted for that, and uh, is now going to probably get, I assume, you know, 20 years. Uh, actually, apparently he faces life imprisonment, I should emphasize, because one of the charges of conviction, Steve, was carrying a firearm in connection with the crime of violence, which is interesting because all the other charges are the typical IEPA and material support and receiving military-style training from a foreign terrorist organization type, all of which, at first glance, you're like, oh, are those crimes of violence? Oh, well, certainly some of them are categorized as such, even though they're not in the immediate sense involving him engaging in violence. What about carrying the firearms? Well, go back to that military-style training. He got trained, I think, on RPGs and automatic weapons. So that offense, I think, carries a life sentence possibility. So this guy, it's a very, very good illustration of how you can cobble these charges together in a way that can result in really massive sentences, uh, even though you don't actually have him linked to a particular plot. Okay, uh, secondly, I'll note that Kevin Mallory, a former CIA and DIA officer, uh, just got 20 years for a for passing secrets to the Chinese. All right, let's uh, get frivolous. Game of Thrones time, Steve. It is over after eight years. The journey is ended. Our long, our, lo- our long, our long wait has our long wait has come to an end. Spring has arrived. It arrived awfully quickly. Yeah, that uh, that that winter wasn't so long. The was winter it? was. A, <laughs> <laughs> that was, was, the winter was kind of like obviously, the show. Obviously, when it transitioned from the George R. R. Martin story to the Benioff and Wise story, the Benioff and Wise uh, uh, team was not super interested in the winter element of this. No. Not at all. Uh, the lot they weren't interested in. Uh, what did you like? What did you dislike? I was there. Like, I was, I was, I was, I was on board with the entire episode up until, uh, up until Drogon burns down the Iron Throne. And if Drogon had burned down the Iron Throne and they had just cut to black, right? I would have been like, yeah, uh uh-huh, that's right. I thought the best thing in the the finale was slagging the Iron Throne. Now, do you interpret that as Drogon is savvier than we thought? He understands understands metaphor? He he understands, like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's the representation of this this thing that that pushed my mother over the edge. Uh, Or... You know, as somebody said on Twitter, like, or is Drogon like, uh, Danny dead. Me mad. Not, no, or like, chair of knives, must have done it. <laughs> die, chair, die. <laughs> I think you're supposed to think he understands yes. metaphorically I think, I think the metaphor, what's going on. I think the metaphor is Maybe supposed more to be than the, all the humans. I think the metaphor is supposed to be the point. Yeah. I thought that was really well done. It was yes. nice. And, 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 and not just that, but everything up to that point, like the, the Tyrion John conversation, right? Like, you know, like I was, th- I was so with the finale up until yeah. that moment. And John, and John, up to that point, you know, he was d- dealt a tough hand for yeah. acting. Um, he did a great job showing the personal struggle. It's not his fault that they didn't give enough shows and scenes to, to make his love like the, for her right. seem real. Right. It's not his fault. There's no chemistry, right. no real sense that that's real. Right. He, but he was supposed to act that role, and he totally did it, and it made sense. If you, if you just accept that he really loves her yeah. and really believed in her, then the struggle makes sense. And listen, and if it just ended there. Like I, you know, I would have had my qualms, but I would have been like, you know what, Game of Thrones, yeah. well done. But no, but, it didn't. But no, all right. 
let's, and, let's and, nitpick. And, and there's almost nothing about what happens after that moment <laughs> that I found remotely plausible or redeeming. So you think, uh, or we're, we're supposed to take away that Brands engineered this whole damn thing, right? Why, why do you think I came all this way? <laughs> like suddenly he's got suddenly he's like, yeah, baby. But also Tywin's like, who has a better story than Bran the Broken? Well, let's go through every oh God, single like person up there, yeah. sitting up there. Like all Sansa? of them. Sansa? Oh, Arya? Even frickin' Uncle Edmund. Look, Gendry's got a better, good story. They've all got good stories. Edmund. <laughs> Ed, Edmund. Okay, and I didn't Sit down, like, Uncle. I didn't like all the comic relief. I mean, the loads of comic relief they injected into that sort of, yeah. that that was like, the okay, let's decide who wins the Game right. of Thrones. So and they turned it into a bunch of punchlines. So I include like Sam with direct democracy, right? That, um, that was terrible. But, the, but here's the worst part. So all that's hokey, right? Yeah. Here's what's completely implausible. That entire exchange, right, that entire setup depends upon a critical fact, right, um, which is Torgo Nudo, um, right? Grey Worm. Grey Worm. Um, agreeing, right? Like, you know, he, you know, they killed his queen. Like, the reason why he, he marched across, you know, sailed across yeah. the sea, and all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, Tyrion's like, well, let's just pick him. And and he's like he, go, he goes from like you don't get to talk to you get to decide everything right as like you know wait all that was missing so so all that was missing from your anger and vengeance over the fact that your queen was killed was um, no properly or even you know sort of um, what's what I'm looking for like improperly elected um, oh, you know yeah well, rump rump uh, king to well, tell you that it's okay how about the very idea that they wouldn't have just killed John outright they had him like the idea right. that they'd be like well let's keep him alive and kind of see what we're going to do here right. see what the others think right but, but and, and what about the Dothraki right who are who are who are even less will, less subject to no, it's all just so nuance. plot, plot, plot. You got to have it. But that, but that to be of everything that happened. I mean, I realize it's weird in a, in a fantasy show to talk about this, but like that was the part that was totally unbelievable, right? No, why, the dragons were much more believable yes. than the behavior yeah. of why, players. Why would Grey Worm at that point just? Uh, why would you have done everything up to that point and then be like, "All right, fine, you choose." Like, yeah, you guys who decide. are who are they to choose? Um, the idea that they would all so willingly go along with Bran was, you know, just silly. It just but, felt so forced. Well, but, but also. Forget that. So they all go along with Bran, and then Sansa's like, nope, I'm out. What? Nobody else at that point is yeah. like, oh, never mind then. What about the still unnamed Prince of Dorne right. who's just lounging around right. adding nothing but more comic relief? Or Yara, sort of... or, or Yara, who's talked about the importance of the independence of the Iron no, Islands. Well, th- but they all feel that way. And the idea that there was something, right. no one's made the case that what, there's was any... There like, was, there, was there one, what, one person was allowed an exception and one Sansa took it, like no backseat? It, it was so it was so forced and such like a just ridiculous moment that no one was like, oh, so your sister gets to be free? It's the Six Kingdoms? Um, yeah, and they haven't said anything about why there needs to be a collective uh, monarchy in this place as at all. As opposed to just seven independent... It's, a, it's obviously... As opposed to a European It's union. obviously deeply decentralized. Yep. The one time they ever had any external threat, they were too busy fighting each other to deal with it. And, and the only, and indeed, the only actual centralized, you know, sort of structure was just burned down. Right, right. Like the, no, the whole like government they just, just They just Hiroshima, the, the, right. the capital. Right. There's no rationale offered for why there would be anything in, in the nature of a unit, anything short of a, I'm anything with, beyond a confederation. I'm not they Tokyoed the capital. Yeah, they took, yeah, yeah. Fire, Firebombing as opposed to nukes. I felt like there's been a lot of talk about the uh, know, the, the dragon as WMDs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Either way. Um, um, 
So, but so everything. Well, I will that. say this though. Last week I said that they should go for secession in the form of Roman secession. I, I almost got it. That you was close. I almost couldn't believe when they said that. I thought for sure they're going to say Brand will choose right. an so, adopted. So, someone on the internet was like, you know, Sam's going to propose direct democracy, and that'll be the end of it. And I was like, that's too that's, silly. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, I hated that they did that. It was just like this, like breaking the fourth wall. I was like, "Hey, audience, ha, look how that is." Right. And, and they're all caricatures of each other at that point. No, they're all yeah. It's like the although we got although we got to see hot we got to see hot Robin Aaron. Oh, I wasn't going to use the word hot for that, but I did. I did like it that Robin Aaron was back. But they should have having him just kind of play it straight, like yeah, you know, say something kind of normal. Have him act weird, do something <laughs> smarmy. Have have you know somebody have to like kind of slap him back a little bit. That would have been better. Okay, I, what about this? Um, another thing I really didn't like, just because it's been done before by, and I know these writers know about it. The scene where where Danny comes out to the gathered throngs of her forces at this part of King's Landing that no one had ever seen before, but right. here it is, and they've got the gigantic black and red Targaryen flag, and it's all obviously as everyone observed, like okay, so this is meant to look Nazi totalitarian things. That scene was staged out and filmed and shown in in colors and everything. It was Force Awakens, General Hux's speech Absolutely. to the First Order. Of course it was. Giant banner and everything. And it's like, but come ca- on, but can I ask, do wait. something different. Can I be a little more pedantic? Yeah. Since when do John and Tyrion understand High Valyrian? Yeah, uh, not, 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 no, no, hold on a Her whole speech is in High Valyrian, right? John and John and Tyrion. Well, are maybe rapping. they do. They're like, maybe they're concerned. Like, do you know what they're saying? And we know Tyrion barely understands it because he. he but had, they, but they react as if like they understood every word. Like yeah. you know, yeah. she's talking about going to Winterfell. Like, uh oh, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and also, like, what Ma- magic? It, now you speak Valyrian. And if they did, you know, universal translator, you got the the, the babble fish <laughs> or something. So if John did know that, then he heard already before Tyrion has to talk him anything. He heard that Danny say that Winterfell is the first place to be conquered. Yep. So he wouldn't need to be persuaded. Um, so maybe he didn't understand fully. No, no, he I think he did. Okay, so then, so I have three more problems. Um, so I, I I do love the I do love sort of Brienne writing in the sort of book of the that was great that was a good scene yeah but she doesn't but she she has no role in that story right and it's like I don't like that she like you know what's her I think that history? was very true to her character yeah well, what was she gonna write in like by the way uh, we fell in love briefly, no but or, uh, no knighted you know knighted Sir knighted Sir Brienne I think it's very true to her character that she would uh, obscure herself in yeah that, and and certainly you know boo and and I think also like. Not just her, but yeah. I think a lot of like true to type, you know, nobles in that situation would not inject a reference to themselves That's and their right. thing. All into right, fine. Um, second, um, the small, the preposterous small council meeting. Uh, too comic-y? Yeah. Or, or who was at the table? Both. Like, first of all, who trust? You know, why would Tyrion trust Braun? No, I thought that with was the money. That was a weak attempt to try to explain why they ever, and it didn't. didn't. But, but like the whole thing with the crossbow plot, yep. everything about how they handled Braun in season eight sucked. They just told, they turned him into a totally like you know just a laugh line. Well, yeah, it's like it become more of a sitcom. Um, in what universe would the grand, would the archmaester allow someone with as little experience, who's never been a maester before, uh, to be the grandmaster? I think the king just demands it. Well, I think they have to allow that. Um, um, the completely again fourth wall be damned. Right. Hey, here's a book called Song of Fire and Ice, hey. so that they can have a laugh line about how Tyrion's not in it. Right. That served no purpose but to just kind of do like a cheap, you know, sitcom style. I did like the, I did like the Maester of Grammar line. That was pretty good. That was good. Uh, that not Mister Minister. Oh wait, uh, yeah. Master of Grammar. Master of Grammar. Not Maester. Um, 
what else about that? Uh, Brienne being Kingsguard was yeah. cool. Pod but, but being Kingsguard was sensible. You really think Pod wants to take a vow of celibacy for the rest of his life? <laughs> fair point. Uh, that is a fair point. I for, is that right about the yeah. Kingsguard? I'd forgotten that. Yeah. yeah, maybe they didn't tell him that part. Ha! Um, Back to the uh, the big or maybe, scene. Or, or maybe they're softening all the rules. Well, I was going to say, a lot of the rules have changed. I mean, nobody's being held to their oaths anymore. True. Um, back to the big appearance in front of her army when they first show Danny and Drogon unfolds his wings behind her, perfectly timed and framed so it that she like, looks right. like a demon vampire lady. Yep. Um, I can't decide if I thought that was just awesome or was co- completely cheap. Uh, over the top, two on the nose, sort yes. of signaling. Kind of both, right? Yes. Like it was, it was when they did it. I couldn't help but be like, "Oh, look at that!" And then I thought, "Oh, that's just too, it's too obvious." Um, what Still, about the fact yeah. that Jamie and Cersei apparently would have survived if they just stood under an arch, or at well, least moved right. twenty feet to the side? There is that, right? The the sort of the selective destruct, the selective collapse of the tower. I mean, it turns out there were only some piles of bricks here and just there. Just move over there. It's totally fine. Just otherwise, go. In, it's an earthquake. Go to the bathroom. Yeah, that I, I mean, I know they had to engineer Plot. it so that it was plausible for him to get in there to uncover their faces, but come on. Uh, let's talk about the ending. Yes. So the, the as some people call it, the John Hughes uh, or the Animal House ending, you know, like they show each person so the, so the last, going off on their the, different pathways. The last real line of dialogue, right, is Tyrion's line about the brothels, right? Yeah, um, the donkey and the honeycomb. The last actual line of dialogue is um, uh, Queen of the North. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, so I thought seeing Sansa go back, okay, first of all, uh, it's wildly implausible that even though everyone else, John has to do his thing and Arya has to go do her thing, we'll come back to that in a moment. Oh yeah, we will. That Arya at least wouldn't go to Winterfell for the for, wouldn't go see that first, right, right. and then you can leave. What's right. your freaking hurry? It's ridiculous. You don't know where you're going. No. Okay. So uh, by the way, I also like how like they won't tell us. Like so, at one point, right, where they're talking about where Drogon's going, right? Um, Sam's about to say something, and Bronn cuts him off. Right, he was oh, lashing like flying east toward, and then right. brought, before he could. Even so these say are it. all these are all possibly laying this, you know, leaving the door open for future shows, which <laughs> is annoying. Um, I sure hope one of those shows is an Arya, Arya, Arya the Explorer. <laughs> um, I hate the ending they gave her. Yep, it was not in any way consistent with anything they've ever said or shown about her character. Um, the idea that she's like, I think I want to be a Western explorer. Because you know, there must be stuff west. What, what, where in where in the entire uh, catalog of things has there ever been anything to suggest that would be remotely of interest to her, or that there is anything west of Westeros? Well, that that I don't mind because if you set up that like she's always kind of wondered and been been yeah. eager to like explore, but the no horizon. one ever, but no one ever bothered to go look. I, in the whole I'm not, history of the Seven Kingdoms? I'm not bothered by that. I'm bothered by having Arya decide that, that right. hey, you've won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, go. she's not going to be an assassin in the New World Order. Oh, I don't know. She might go to Winterfell and live there and be home where she always said she was desperate well, to so get this back. Is, so this is, I mean, the weird part about Sansa's ending, right, is that Sansa ends up Queen of the North with no one, right, with yeah. no one with her. That, to me, is entirely consistent with her character where she has suffered so badly whenever she's been out of Winterfell. She wants to go back there. She's, she's no, no, the she biggest No, she wants to be there, but, like, she has no... Like, in that final scene where she's getting crowned, like, yeah. you don't recognize True. any of the other people. I, I think we have to have a little suspension of disbelief that, that accounts for the fact that, yes, all the characters we know are gone, but but she's supposed to be like a diehard Winterfellian, and therefore you have to assume that these are her people nonetheless, people she knows, people she's comfortable being around. But at least that, to me, is not out of character. Are you becoming this random sort of, like, Leif Erikson explorer or Christopher Columbus explorer makes no sense at all. Um John's ending, the final ending. So do you interpret it as 
everyone actually, at least Bran and others, kind of knew all along that, yeah, there's no Nightwatch anymore. This is basically a trick we're playing on the Unsullied so he can go do what John wants, which is not to be king, to get out of here and just go be a, a, a friend of Tormund and go live in the, the north beyond the wall. I think so. Yeah, and that makes sense. I Not just to live in the north beyond the, beyond, beyond the wall, but don't you think he's going to be the king beyond the wall? They don't do kings, man. What was Matt Raider? He was the exception, and he was still only sort of first among equals. Uh, no, I don't think he's going off to be king up there. I think he's going off. He's, the guy does not want to be king. All right. So the, the other thought I had was um, the last shot, there are so many children in the shot, and they're walking to the forest. And I was thinking like... It was a little, it was a little homage you've never, the you, you've never actually explained the children of the forest to us. Like, is this is this like history, like the end of Battlestar Galactica, like history repeating itself? I think it's meant to symbolize that this isn't going to be like just like a final resting place for the 30 or 40 strug, struggling like a new, a new, Yeah, like, there's going to be a society that will thrive up there. civilization. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Um, I thought that was okay. My only objection to how they handled John's fate, I actually don't, he didn't want to be king. So everybody's like, oh, John Stark should have been king. Right. Didn't want it. And now he's crushed. He, fe- you know, he, he feels like his life's over for what he had to do for everybody. So I think it's actually perfect that he went there. But I wish they'd shown with a little bit more smile from him and Tormund both that like, oh, I see. Like the moment you see, they see each other, they should be like, you, there's a way to act it to where it's not like they're super happy, right. but we this is it. a good result and right. we, we survived. And uh, and there's also his weird reunion with the direwolf with Ghost. Yeah. Do you think they had added that in afterwards because people were so mad about how they handled it before? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was all right. I was happy to see that. I'd so say, it's over. Everything, but everything after the the melt on the iron throne, I, I could have done without. Um, yeah. People, if you gave it sort of just a hardcore sort of like, who even knows what happened next? I think there'd be even more upset people. I don't know. I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> I. I I haven't found that many people who actually thought this, the part after, like even the folks who like have defended the episode, defended everything up to the melting of the Iron Throne, not necessarily what happened thereafter. Yeah. But, um, well, it's over now. Indeed. And So uh, what's next? I guess maybe I'll try to catch up with Westworld so I can talk about it with you. I was, although, although I was apparently, intrigued by what I saw. Although apparently season three isn't coming until next year, so you got that some time. That gives me some time. I'll need it. Um, yeah, so listeners, give us ideas for the series you think we should uh, turn our attention to. I watched episode three of uh, Chernobyl last night. Mm-hmm. Ugh. It's so good and Is it's it? so bad. Like, okay. I mean, it's so good, but it's like so, like, you know. Depressing? Depressing. Well, that, you're not selling me on it. Um, you need to go watch all these Avengers what? movies wait, so we can talk about Avengers Endgame. You think Chernobyl's going to be like a happy story? No, Chernobyl. but I, th- there's a reason I'm not watching it and you're not selling it on me. You know, for kids. <laughs> Chernobyl now, new improved. All right, I think we've gone on for almost a record at this point. We're almost there. Let's let's end it now. Uh, you don't want to talk about the Mets and 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 how I have no more professional sports teams. See the Chernobyl principle. Seriously, uh, the Chernobyl principle. That could, no, no, not quite. I like the other one more. Yeah, yeah we'll use that. All right, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. Uh, we are at NSL Podcast. Um, hey, Bobby. By this time next week, we could have a Cirque Grant and Hernandez. Ooh, yeah, you're definitely going to be busy coming up. Oh, by the way, I need to tell you, uh, I got some a vacation. Heather and I and the kids were out of town, uh, not on Memorial Day, uh, but following that. So, no, I know. So, so we, we got have a week off there. Um, are you leaving Tuesday? I'm leaving on a Thursday. Oh, so we'll, we'll, have time to, we'll have time to record next week then. Before next week we can do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, everybody have a very happy, healthy, safe Memorial Day. Um, stay safe out there. Adios.